Hopefully you have had a great week as we uh, come into this one. Um, I thought I'd share this is kind of interesting on perspective. All right, Linda, you'll like this. It's a matter of perspective. So is your glass half empty or is it half full? You said we had 80-some mile-per-hour winds a couple of weeks ago. It's a farmer talking. He says, I had crop adjusters out today. We totaled out four fields. Last Friday night, a drunk driver hit my wife's car, totaled it out. The driver was handcuffed and taken away. Today, an air compressor, for who knows what reason, exploded at my grain elevator, creating a huge hole in the side of the wall. And last but not least, just as um, uh, I had a blowout on a liquid fertilizer nurse trailer on my way to deliver it, my crops were looking great and I knew there were good yields. But that being said, I'm assuming most of us have seen the price and it's not worth much. So I will get a... I will get 115% of my proven yield at its price, which is better today. Last Friday night, my wife walked away without a scratch, though she was sore the next day. She took a drunk driver off the road that potentially could have killed someone else. The air compressor where it sits is right where folks stand when they unload corn in the fall. So if it happened in the fall, someone would have been killed. The flat tire could have happened far away from home without any tools or anyone being around to help me. Instead, they were, and I'm not far from home. How often we think things are coincidences instead of praising God and realizing that he's protecting us every single day. In life, there's no coincidences. As much as we get upset about things going on in this country and many things uh, we don't like and are upset about, just know he's in control. And in the end, faith will win. I kind of liked that. I thought, wow, uh, difference in perspective. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together, we're going to ask for perspective as we uh, dig back into the book of Romans. And uh, Lord, let this sink into us. Uh, this is some stuff we're really going to grapple with. I know that. Uh, but help, help us understand it, not just in a theological way, but in a personal way. What are you saying to us? What does it mean for us? Individually, I want to know that. And as a church, I want to feel that where you're leading us. And so, God, we give you this time. We ask that you work in it. In Jesus' name, let's say it together. Amen. We're in Romans 8. Uh, Pastor Negative, you haven't been here in so long. I don't know if you do. You know, do you know where the book of Romans is? <laughs> Somebody help Pastor Negative find Romans. I do want to bring us right back into where we, uh, where we started off. Um, if you look at this section that begins with verse 18, we've been talking about the way Paul sees life, the way he lives today. Um, Paul is always fully present in today, and I, and I think I need to be present in today. Uh, when I'm talking to someone, listening to someone, praying with someone, I want to be present enough to hear them, walk with them. Um, we are present in a way that recognizes things that are going on in our world and cares about them. Uh, we're called to do that, right? We're stewards of the things that God has given us. And um, I need to play my part in the world that I'm, I'm a part of. It's why I've always enjoyed the fact that, you know, Luther, when he talks about who we are, we are, we are citizens of this world. We, we, have, we have a part in it, and we ought to play our part in it as good stewards. And so when I watch some of the things that we're watching on television today, and, I, you know, we're all seeing... Um, cities that are being burned up and 
I, I look at all that and I think, okay, um, I'm a part of this world. What, what can I do that's helpful uh, given the realities of this world that, that I'm a part of? So we're present in our world today. At the same time, we have a whole different perspective. The, the, the lens through which we look, the thing that makes it different is we put on this lens that says, okay, we're, we're in this world today, but we're also citizens of a whole different kingdom. When I look at Jesus and the amount of time that he spends worrying about the things in this world, he's not a- absent from the things in this world. He does say, right, who, whose coin is that? Caesar's. Give it to Caesar. Participate. Be a citizen. But do you see Jesus getting pretty involved politically? I didn't. Do you ever see Jesus get his apostles together and say, hey, what we need to do is we, we need to become part of some associations that are, are work? No. What does he say? My kingdom's not of this world. And so what Paul's doing is he's, he's kind of helping the church recognize that as we go out into Rome, we're, we're going to be really bringing the gospel to people who are citizens of this world. But what we want to give them is a gift, the ability to put on new lenses and see who we are and to see that that this whole world is is what is it doing it's it's coming apart it's crying out it recognizes that it's broken to the degree that all of creation you know whether it's the hurricane that that's hitting texas right now uh or the volcano that goes off or the fires that take place or doesn't matter where you look in all of creation all of creation is crying out for what? Restoration. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not. And, you know, when God created the world, he didn't say, hey, I'm going to create a world where there's viruses that, you know, make people wear masks all day long. No. He didn't say, I'm going to, I'm going to create viruses that jump out of pigs into people or bats into people. No. He didn't say, I'm going to create a world where there's, there's hostility. No. He said, I'm creating a world where there's intimacy with me. And so Paul's been doing that. He's saying we live with this set of glasses that look ahead and recognize that we are in the midst of a world that is breaking and has been broken since Adam and Eve broke God's heart in the garden. And we are looking forward to that future glory that is yet to come. In the meantime, God is at work in us and he is uh, helping carry us through this world and calling us to join him as he's already begun his restoration process. It won't end until the resurrection, but he's already begun his restoration process, restoring people to the cross, through the cross to his father. Restoring, restoring this, this, this world will ultimately take place at the resurrection. So when, when did you get involved in all of this? When did that happen? It's kind of interesting as you as you get to verse uh, twenty eight in Romans, you you hear some familiar words that are immediately followed by words that make you stop in your tracks. Verse twenty eight, we know that God, or that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We learn. I don't know when you learn that verse, but for me, it goes back a long ways. You know, um, I was just. I think I was a kid. And I think the way I was taught, I can still kind of remember uh, somebody saying to me, you know, God's at work in your life, and there's going to be some hard things that happen. And you're not going to recognize his, his presence in those hard things, but he's present. 
He's working in them. He's working through them. And he will cause them to work for good. Not, not good the way our world defines it. Good the way I, I define it is, okay, God, I want you to work this for, for good. Here's what I mean by that, God. <laughs> this is what good looks like. Nope. Nope. I, good is different for God, right? Good is what's right for him. He knows what's right for you. So he's working all things for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He's not working all things for good for everyone. Not true. He is working through everything that happens to try to bring people into a relationship where what is happening is for their good. But he's not working good for all people at all times. It's not. That's not what this says. I'm working good for all who are called according to my purpose, who love me. Well, who would that be? Here's where the text gets interesting and where I think we almost stop on our tracks. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so think about this. God's working all things for good in a way that was foreknown. That's the word here. I knew this before. So I like to just stop people in their tracks and say, before what? Before what? And it takes us all the way back to what? This moment described in the book of Genesis that occurs prior to creation itself. What boggles our minds when you start to to think about who God is and how he works in our lives is you start with this word that he or knew you before what? Before the creation of the world. And what did he do? You get this long list of things that Paul is pointing to. And uh, I think they're worth, you know, looking at. He, he before the world was, was even made, called you. You know what that means? He set you aside. He said, this character over here that, that Colleen has to put up with all the time, I'm going to set him aside for my purpose. Before the world was made. Think about that, Barry. Right? This guy over here, this Ron guy, who makes a lot of trouble for a lot of people, I'm, st- I'm setting him aside for my purposes. Right? That's, that's, that's mind-boggling to think about that. Do you, do you know that God knew you before you were even born? Before your mom and dad knew you. God knew you. He set you apart. He says, I'm going to have, I want D to be used for my purposes. Think about that. Before the world is made, God is setting you apart. It says that he purposed you. He actually created your purpose before the world was made. That is mind-boggling. In fact, I, I, many times I've stopped in my life and I've said, where do kids learn this? Where do, where do you get taught this? Um, I have yet, I, I'm just being honest, I have yet to find even a, a school of any stripe, secular, Christian, it says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time. And, and our, our focus, our purpose, I mean, you're going to learn math and you're going to learn some English, that kind of thing. That's great because you're going to be in a world. You've got to be a citizen of the world. You've got to steward things. But here's the main thing we're going to do is we're going to actually spend time. We're going to try to seek out what is your purpose. I get blown away when we have graduation ceremonies 
And I go up and I talk to kids. I'm like, what are you going to do with with your life? What are you going to study? Oh, I'm studying this. Why? Well, I'm kind of interested in it. I'm like, well, okay, that's good. I'm glad you're interested in it. How, what did God purpose you for? What do you mean? Well, I mean, before the world was made, God created a purpose for you. What was it? Well, I don't know. Well, then what if you're wasting your life, right? What if you're going to go study this thing? How much are your parents paying for this, by the way? Uh, I think it's 100000 a year. Better get your purpose right, right? That's <laughs> expensive. I'm like, so where, where do we stop and actually actually do this? Where we take, hey, kids, come to, do you know that before you were born, before this world was born, before light existed, before there was a, an ocean, before a single fish swam in the sea, before a single bird filled up the air, before all of that, God said, I'm setting you apart for me, and this is your purpose. Let's spend some time trying to figure that out, because if you get that, holy smokes, guess what? You you are living in sync with the God who made you for himself, and it will change the way you live your life. In fact, I I really believe this, because I I get to spend a lot of time with people in, in a counseling context. I find a lot of people's misery probably derives from this right here. I I have a purpose. I'm not in that purpose at all. And so people feel it very deeply. That sense of I'm, I'm out of sync. I'm not something that isn't quite right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so he's saying for new before the world was created. Here is your purpose. He made you righteous. Think about that. In a way, in a way that even exists prior to the world's creation, he not only makes you, but he says this one, this one will be made righteous. And there's only one way that we're made righteous. That is through Jesus Christ. And so this setting a part of you, purposing you, connects directly to his desire to bring you into faith. We have a word for that. We just read the word. The word is predestined. Most Lutherans, when I have this conversation with them, will tell me, no, God doesn't predestine. That's not true. He doesn't do that. We all have a choice. It's a choice. Uh, American theology is built around the idea that we all come into the world, and we're a blank slate, and we get to decide if if life's going to be good or life's going to be bad. I get to decide, am I going to follow Jesus Christ? I'm not going to follow Jesus Christ. It's all about choice. That's American theology. It's also evangelical theology. It's not biblical theology. Biblical theology is built around, you can't escape it, guys. This word right here is predestined. Pre means before. Set in place before. Made righteous before. Only one way you're made righteous, that's through Jesus Christ. What we're talking about is who is going to come into faith. God knows it before the world begins. He predestines it. How many of you learned that when you were a kid, by the way? I mean, you say, yep, I remember that. I remember the pastor teaching us this predestination stuff. Um, how many of you, I mean, honestly, how many of you would say, I don't remember learning this stuff? This, this sounds odd to me. How many of you are actually awake today? Because I didn't get to see that many hands go up. Seriously, how many of you are like, what? I, I don't know if I've heard this before. Really? Okay. Um, 
I hadn't. I, I remember the. I think the, one of the first times I really heard this um, went off to school, and all of a sudden I'm sitting in a classroom, and here comes this prof, and he says, "We're going to study uh, a guy by the name of Walther's theses on predestination." And I went, predestination? Well, that's definitely not Lutheran. So we must be studying this to try to get a contrast of theology in place. I like doing that. We're not that. We're this, right? Um, nope. Nope. Walther. Wait a minute. Walther? Did you say Walther's thesis on predestination? Yep. Well, now that dude is Lutheran. You can't get more Lutheran, right? You guys know who Walther is, right? CFW? You guys recognize that name? If you don't, CFW, he's a guy who a lot, of the, a lot of the buildings at our seminary are named after CFW Walther. I mean, uh, next to Luther, yeah, this guy defines American Lutheranism, right? Uh, he defines what it means to, be, to become a Lutheran as we, as we step into this, this country. So I started looking at these theses and I'm thinking, well, no, I never learned this predestination, that seems to go against this idea that we have choice. But it doesn't. Here's where it gets difficult. I'll just set this in place now. We'll kind of come back around it and probably come back around it more than once. When you talk about predestination, it is this idea being expressed here in Romans 8 that before, before this world was ever made, God sets this in place. He knows before those who will come to know his son as their savior, right? Um, who is it that makes you righteous? Yeah. Who is it that seeks you and finds you and causes you to become a believer? Him. It's all about him. Predestination recognizes that rather than making my faith an act on my part, I have a choice. I'm going to find Jesus Christ. I'm going to, to give my life to him. That no, all the whole time, it is a God who seeks me out, who causes me to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so literally when you talk about predestination, what we're saying is that no one comes to faith through choice. It's not true. You don't come to faith through choice. You don't say, well, I have decided to follow Jesus. Why did you decide to follow Jesus? Um, I thought it would be a good idea. No. Why did you decide to follow Jesus? Um, I heard a sermon and I heard the guy talk about hell and I don't want to go there. No. Why did you decide to follow Jesus? You know who quickens faith? God does. The Spirit does. You can't do it of your own. And in fact, when you look at the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and you go to those classical verses that say you are dead in your trespasses and sin, you don't have the ability. You do not have the ability to, to make a choice. Dead people. If I go to the seminary, Terry, today, right, and I stand in front of a grave and I'm like, come on out. Come on. Come on out of there. Does that dead person have a choice? No, he has no choice. He's going to stay in the grave. I guarantee it. Right? So, um, this is what we're recognizing. Now, that said, that said, let me just flip the coin to the other side, because this is important. I want you to get this. The other side of the coin is, when we talk about predestination, one of the things that grinds against us 
is there are two different theological ideas when it comes to the doctrine of predestination. One is representative of what we're going to call Presbyterian, that lineage, and one is representative of, of, of Lutheran, and ultimately that comes out of Catholicism. So a Presbyterian would say this, God chooses who will go to heaven, and he does that before the world is made. He predestines that. And he chooses who will go to hell. And he determines that before the world is made. That's Presbyterian. We have a name for that. We call that double predestination. Both sides of the coin. Is it scriptural? It's not. Here's the interesting thing. Lutherans, what makes us so weird, I mean, just pointedly, what makes us weird, is we're not American theologians. We're not. Person Baptist comes to me, we got a choice, I'm going to make my, I'm like, no, you don't have a choice. Like a Romans right here, God, who determines this? Who sets this in place? God does. Dead people can't make choices. So I'm not you, Baptist. I'm not American theology. Presbyterian says, well, then you're with me. You, God determines here. I'm like, no, I'm not with you either. Why not? Well, because all throughout the scripture, God tells us that we do have a choice to do one thing. What is that? To reject. To reject him. We have that choice. I have that power. And so in a, in a very interesting way, the Bible would say this. Yes, God determines. God chooses those who are going to heaven. We determine who will go to hell. I make that choice. I reject what you desire to give me. Here's what you don't want to do with this doctrine. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to make this the basis for deciding, you know, who who amongst your family or friends or schoolmates or workmates is going to heaven or hell. Don't don't do that. Like, uh, that guy right there, I'm I'm pretty sure he, he he's heading for hell. No, don't do that. The other thing we don't want to do is, is you don't want to say, well, if it's chosen, I mean, if God's already chosen this thing, then guess what? Why should I waste my time going out and evangelizing? Because if he's already chosen, it's a done deal, and it's going to take place anyway, despite what I do. Why do we go out? Because I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know who God is going to bring to faith. Or if God chose before the world was even made, one of his purposes for Luke was you're going to be the instrument through which this word is delivered and this person is brought to faith. And so don't let it govern the way that we think about outreach. In fact, this this whole book, Romans, is about what? The church going out with the gospel of Jesus Christ for the purpose, purpose of bringing people into their purpose that God established before the beginning of the world. Nonetheless, this is true right here. He made us righteous before the world even began in a very real sense. It's already occurred because God knows you, I will bring into relationship with my son, Jesus Christ. And through that relationship, righteousness takes place in your life. One of the hardest doctrines in all the Bible, one of the toughest doctrines in all the Bible, Walther, when you read his theses, they're not easy to read, by the way, he basically concludes that this is a doctrine of grace, not law, but grace, meant to give Christians confidence that I belong to Jesus Christ 
knowing that we will at times have our enemy assail our faith. Come after you. You're not really a Christian. You don't really believe. Your faith isn't really sincere. Wait a minute. God knew me before this world came. And so we use that that doctrine to push back against uh, Satan himself. I want you to hold on to this because we're going to see this theme carried forward here as we get into chapter 9. Let's go to this next bullet point he made. He made us to conform with Jesus Christ. One of the things that, that God's doing before the world ever begins, he says, not only will I bring you into faith relationship, but through that faith relationship, I'm bringing you into conformity with my son, Jesus Christ. What that means is, today, God is, he's doing it right now. He's, he's continuously working on Luke to help Luke become more and more like Jesus Christ, Right? So, what is the ultimate goal of discipleship? Think about this, Steve. You're going to like this. Discipleship, we take the term. What is a disciple? Well, if we look at, this, look at the term, a disciple is a student of a master. Not, not like we go to school today, sit in rows and learn from the teacher up front. How do we used to learn? You got into a relationship with the teacher. You lived with them. You watched the way they did things. You began to imitate them. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to live with Jesus Christ in such a way that I begin to conform with him. I begin to, to live the way that he lives. All right? God is trying to do that with every one of us right now. I want your life to be conformed to mine. And so what he's telling us before the world ever got put into place I know you, John, so well. I know where you're stubborn. I do. I know where you're stubborn. I'm going to work on that. I know Angela Mueller. She's got some places in her life that aren't are not right. They, they kind of take her this way when she should be going this way. I'm going to work on that. He knows us that well. That in every one of our lives, he says, you know, that least there, she's got some tendencies here. He's working on those. Why? Because he wants us to conform to Jesus Christ. He wants our lives to look like his, as his disciples. He brought me into an intimate relationship. Before the world was ever created, God says, you will have an intimate relationship with me. As you conform to my son, you, you will, what? You will live the way that my son lives and, and really as a shadow of that, honestly. But I'll be developing you so that your purpose in life becomes very cross-centered. And that's what Paul is trying to paint a picture of here with this language, is he's trying to help this church, this body of people recognize that you're not who you are because you're Jewish, right? Or because you're Gentile. You're who you are. Your basis for who you are goes all the way back to before time. And you become who you are through the work of a God who set this in place before time even began. Powerful words for a church that needs to recognize that if that's true, then our calling, our purpose is to go out with the cross into the world in a way that recognizes every human soul as having value and every soul as one that God made, and I may be the person that God is seeking to use to bring this soul in a relationship with himself, because I don't know 
who is and who will not be. Uh, Only God knows that. At the end of kind of giving this word to the church, Paul asks a question. Go to verse 31. He says, so if all that's true, what should we say? What should we say about that? He says, if God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what does all this mean? Paul says, what it means is God's for us. And who, who can actually stand against us? Great, great question. Who could stand against us? Verse 33. This is, by the way, I, I just made this note. This is significant. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? Why is that significant? Well, remember this whole chapter starts off as an answer to the question. In other words, charges are being filed against Paul. Charges are being filed against the Christians. I call them legal charges because that's, that's what's happening is the Jewish church is saying of the Christians what? You all have dumped the law. And you've dumped the, the prophets. You, you've dumped the, 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 the kings who were great. You've dumped all of that stuff. And now you've gotten into this touchy-feely grace stuff. So we're bringing charges against you. You're not real. You're not, you, you're, you've, you've gotten rid of the law. So, so all along, Paul's been saying, oh, no, 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 no. We didn't, we didn't dump the law out. But what we've done is we've said, we're going to follow the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf, the one who has justified us, the one who has made us his, his very own. So who, who can, you want to bring charges against us? If you do that, guess who you're really bringing charges against? Him. You're really bringing charges against Jesus. He goes on to say, verse 34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus? That's who you're charging here, really. You want to condemn him? Who is to condemn Christ Jesus? Is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Um, I think this is just great stuff, that as we go out in the world, there's going to be charges leveled against us. Some of them rightly made some charges leveled against the church rightly made um, I don't try to deny that you're a hypocrite yes I am mm-hmm. yeah I am I many, I've many times I've, I've said this I do that I recognize that in fact it's, it's the very reason that I come before God every week and what do I do start how do I start worship with a confession of sins I never come in to say hey you know what I've got my life right I'm a member of the church I'm, I'm no I come before God with what yeah I'm, I'm a hypocrite you churches uh, you churches out there are um, just homophobic you hate gays this is something that I've lived with now for years. Um, in fact, someone said it to me here just a couple of months ago. They're like, yeah, uh, the reason that my sister won't come to, to your church is you hate gays. Where'd you get that? Well, you said it in a sermon. I said, where? When? Name it. I ke- I, I've got my manuscripts. Actually, I could go back and sort through and show you. There's not one word that would ever 
suggest that we hate gays. In fact, oppositely, we love them. We love them. Do I love their sin? No. But it would be hatred towards a gay for me to tell them, hey, what you're doing is good for you. I would be hate. That'd be hate. It'd be like if I went to a doctor and he put his stethoscope up and he goes, "Oh, this doesn't sound right." Ran me through a through, through some tests and said, "Luke's got some blockage in his in his heart and it's going to kill him." If that doctor said to me, "Yeah, you're fine. I, I like you the way you are," I'd feel good. I'd be like, "Oh, good." I don't like it when the doctor goes, "You need our open heart surgery. We're going to cut you open. We're going to give you like five bypasses." I'm not like, "Ooh, that sounds fun." Hey. Why not six? No. Um, that, but, but the doctor cares enough about me to say, this is what's happening right here. Do I hate gays? No, I do not hate gays. I have them in my family. I have people in my, my life that are, love, love them to death. Love the person. But I will always tell them, look, this, is, this will destroy you. It will. And it separates you. It just keeps you separate from the one who loves you the most, Jesus Christ. And uh, so will the church, will the church receive receive criticism yes it will but we also know this that we follow this god who not only made us beforehand but is what he is constantly interceding on our behalf he knows what it's like to go out into a world that will hate you and come against you but to bring the very gospel why is that important for this church in rome what are they going to experience intense what persecution they will experience hatred uh, from every side the Jews will hate them because you've abandoned the law. The Romans will hate them because you create so many problems for our culture. We've got to get rid of you. And so all of a sudden, here's Paul going, yes, but remember who you are. Remember that God made you. He purposed you. He called you. Go out with that word. And remember this. Jesus is interceding for you. If you've never done it before, John 17 is what we call, I call it, the other Lord's Prayer. That's what I like to call it, because uh, we're, we're more familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but if you've never done it, you know, in your devotional time, really a cool thing to do is just take John 17. It's Jesus, you call it Jesus' prayer for his people. And just work through it real slowly. Um, you take a week to do it, at least a week, and just let those words speak to you. Because here's what Jesus is praying for, for you. And um, he's praying for your protection from the evil one. He's praying for your protection from within. Uh, he's, he's seeking to, to cause us to become a unified body of people on earth so that our message can go out in a unified way. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. And this is what, what Paul is saying is this Jesus who made us is, is not just purposed us and sent us out by ourselves, but he's in a relationship with us, walking with us, praying with us and we're going to need that prayer because guess what there's going to become times in your life as you go out into Rome and you begin to bring this gospel to people where your life your life may end where you you may meet your end when you meet your end meet it with love meet it with love how many of you have seen this picture this, this week? Um, of course, we, we, we lost a couple of, of people this past week. Um, but John Lewis, if you've kind of watched a little bit of, of the, the documentaries that they pull back up, remember he was one of the guys that was marching um, for civil rights back in the 60s. 
and um, they have this scene where he's he's in a kind of a suit and a sports sports coat that goes down. He's got his bag, and it says "One man, one vote. One man, one vote." And part of part of the issue in that day was you're not a real person, and so you don't have the right to vote. And uh, there was a there was a battle going on in our in our culture, saying, "No, I, I'm a man. I'm made." I'm made in the image of God just like you. Uh, I, I love the Lord just, just like you. And he, he's walking down the street. And I like what the commentary says. He knows what's getting ready to happen. And he does. He does know what's getting ready to happen. And he walks, walks down. The, and all of a sudden, here, here, here come the, the police. And they're beating him, beating him, beating him back. And what happened in the 60s was it, it, broke, it broke a lot of Americans' hearts. It really did, because people who thought, well, these are these bad rioters are doing this stuff. I'm talking about in the 60s. <laughs> I'm not talking about people torching buildings today. I'm talking about people in the 60s who come along and all of a sudden they're like, that didn't right. Why are you beating that guy? Stop beating him. And they, they, they just let themselves. Just, if I'm going to take it. One man, one vote. I don't care what it costs me. I just want one. Just one man, one vote. That's it. And Americans, their heart broke. They went, you know, this isn't right. That person's a person. They deserve to be able to vote. As Christians, we go out in the world, we don't go out with hatred. We don't go out like you, you, whatever. Um, go out with love. And we know, and the people reading this have to know, there's going to come times for some of your lives where the Roman's going to say, you're under arrest. And it's going to take you to prison because you're a Christian. And there's going to be some of you who you're going to be killed in some horrible ways. And when that happens, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that, that Jesus is interceding for you in heaven and that you're fulfilling the purpose for which he made you here in this world. And now I want you to listen to these words. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? can't be separated from them. Should tribulations, <laughs> you're getting ready to go through some. How about distress? How about persecution? How about famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? None of it. Not one thing in this entire world can separate you from the one who knew you beforehand and made you as his own. And he quotes Psalm 44, 22 here, uh, as it's written, for, for your sake, God, we're being killed all the day long. We're being killed. We're being regarded like sheep to be slaughtered. We're not even humans anymore in the eyes of the Romans, just objects to be killed. But, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors for him, through him who loved us. By the way, I always, I always pick this out. The actual Greek term here, you could, you could translate it this way. We're super Nikes. <laughs> you know, Nikos is the god of victory. And so when you put on a pair of Nikes and you get that little swoosh, that swoosh takes us back to the Roman world and to the god of victory. And what uh, is borrowed into the scriptural language is this idea that in Jesus Christ, we're not just victors, we're super victors. In other words, the battle has already been won for us through Jesus Christ 
do not be afraid. Do not be scared. Go out boldly in his name and carry this gospel out because there is not anything. And I, I, I mean, all of us have heard these words, but you just let them lift you up. I'm sure, I'm certain, there is no doubt in me that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, not depth, nothing in all of creation can separate us from what? The love of Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from that love. He loves you. Go out now and love the world. And um, we'll close on that note today. But what a beautiful message to, to think about. Exceeds my ability as a human being to even think about just the way that God has been working in your life before he spoke those first words. Think about that this week. Lord, as we close today, we uh, close recognizing that um, you do it all in a way that we honestly cannot even begin to comprehend. We look at the words, we acknowledge the words, we receive them into us, we can't comprehend it. It blows our minds to think about the fact that we are only here today, now, not because of a choice we made, but because of you, a choice you made. And Lord God, uh, as much as that exceeds our ability to understand, we do know this, that no matter what, Lord, as we go out and live the purpose that you've given us, we're going to encounter hard times. But nothing can separate us from you. Lord, be with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, Some very thick soup theologically next week. We'll continue this idea of predestination and the sovereign choice of God.